Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome. Today I'm here with Nicole Jevtovich. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, close enough. (laughs) Nicole is the principal solicitor and mediator at Clarity Legal Group. She's doing the juggle with the three husbands. No, she hasn't got three husbands. With the three toddlers and the husband. (laughs) Oh, that's the best way to start, isn't it? She's now got three husbands. God, one's enough. managing a successful law firm and mediation practice. After years of working with thousands of separated couples, she's seen many women, particularly stay-at-home mums, receiving less than they're entitled to during divorce and separation. Nicole's going to talk to us today about how women can protect themselves and stand up for their rights during separation, as well as ensuring that they're protected in the future. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. That was a fabulous introduction, wasn't it? I know. We get it wrong. Bearing me off to other people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me a little bit about yourself, because this is a really specialised area of law, isn't it? How did you How did you end up there, and what is it exactly that you do? Yeah. So I'm a family lawyer. I'm also a mediator. When I've got my lawyer hat on, I can't be a mediator. When I'm a mediator, I can't be a lawyer. So it, it really is two very distinct areas. But having the background in family law as a lawyer really helps me when I'm mediating disputes. How I got into it, it wasn't, it was more organic, really. You know, when I originally um, first finished my law degree and started practicing, I was actually a criminal lawyer. So I was, yes, so I was defending the criminals. That's what I was doing. Yeah. And I did, I started doing a little bit and, you know, I was like young, I was in my early twenties and I started doing a bit of family law, but it's really only when I had kids that I really became passionate about family law and helping parties resolve those disputes. I think it just gave me that little bit of insight into understanding what actually happens when people separate and how important your kids are to you. (laughs) I think until we have kids, we really can't. We can kind of understand, but we really haven't got an inkling of the size and the power of those emotions that come up. And, And that's got to be one of the reasons why there's so many issues when people are separating when there's kids. Yeah, And I think a lot of it from my perspective as a lawyer, particularly with my background in criminal law, I was in court every day. I was very comfortable in an adversarial environment, litigating and standing up for my clients. And I approached family law in the same way back then. But I think after getting married and having children, it really made me take a step back and look at the way I was practicing because I realized that court is not always the best option. Arguing for the sake of arguing is not always the best option. Um, It probably is a better option to keep things as amicable as possible so people can move on with their lives. And that's part of the reason why I started mediating too. So what's the difference between mediating and and actually being a Yeah, lawyering. (laughs) Um, So as a lawyer, a separated party would just come to me. I can only act for one 
party to the separation, I give them advice as to what they're entitled to, what they should do, what the process is, prepare all their documents for them, go to court if I have to, prepare any agreements. As a mediator, um, my involvement is just limited to a short period. It's usually just one day where I sort of represent both parties. I can't give them legal advice, but I bring them together and I try and guide them towards a resolution. How easy, difficult, what's that actually like? I mean, it's got to depend completely, but what's your experience been of that? Really good. Surprisingly, particularly with my background litigating, I was so used to being adversarial, but um, I am shocked at how many times I go into a mediation and I do like a separate intake with each party and both of them say to me, there's no way we're going to get an agreement today. And I say to them, just hold on and we've got an agreement by the end of the day. Like it is shocking how often that happens. Why? Why is that the case? I don't, I really don't know. Maybe because they're used to dealing with it on their own or dealing with it between lawyers and it's just bickering back and forth, not getting anywhere. Whereas you bring in a, like a third party like myself, I'm not, like neither of them are my clients as such. I've got no vested interest in what happens with either one of them. I just genuinely want them to resolve it because I know that court's a terrible place to be. So I think it helps having that third party and having a level of trust that they trust me when I say, like, reach this agreement, don't go to court, like, think about what you really want to be doing. Whereas I don't, I don't know if lawyers, some lawyers, I'm sure they do, but I don't know if some lawyers would say that to them, they would just be focused on getting what their client wants or going to court or whatever the case is. Yeah, my personal experience with solicitors is like, there's, there's two sides of it. Either they don't want to, they'll say, yes, we need to do this, but I can't guarantee the outcome. But you yeah. need to do this because it's the only way you're going to, you've got any chance yeah. of what you getting what you want. That's my experience. So you're left with, I haven't got an option, but there's also no guarantee. Yeah. Yeah, I find that really because I'm somebody who, if I'm going to do something, I'll make it happen. But they'll go, oh, no, it depends on the judge on the day. Oh, you can't guarantee. And their solicitor's going to do blah. And Yeah. And But you know what? Like I'm I'm guilty of that too. That's a lawyer thing. And, and that's why as a media, like I, even when I'm as a lawyer, I, I do try and get parties to reach an agreement because of that reason. It's true. You, you just don't know what will happen in court. You know, we're guided by precedent we're guided by the cases we've had before us and the law but really it's the unknown and that's the benefit of mediation is that you know what the outcome is there is no risk like you've got the agreement you know what's happening if someone else isn't making the decision for you you're you're choosing your own future I'd never actually thought of it like that because mediation it kind of has always landed for me as uh, this is your final chance before you start battling in court Hmm. whereas we could look upon mediation as we why aren't we doing that first let's sit down and really resolve things yeah yeah I agree I am like like I said I'm just shocked at the amount of matters that resolve when neither party thought that it would resolve and no one's ever 100% happy at the end of the day but majority of the time people are happy enough with the outcome and they're glad they didn't spend tens of thousands of dollars on lawyers going to court yeah so After years of working with thousands of separated couples, she's seen many women, particularly stay-at-home mums, receiving less than they're entitled to during Mm -hmm. divorce and separation. Mm -hmm. Let's go down that path for a little bit. Could talk about this for hours. All right. 
off we go. So what was your first experience with that? What happened? Oh, I can't, I couldn't point a finger at what my first experience is, but I can tell you what my most common experience is. And, you know, I'm generalizing, of course, there's exceptions to this, but dealing with a female client is very different than dealing with a male client. Females instinctively don't want to go to court. They want to keep things amicable, particularly when there are kids involved. They don't want to upset everyone. More often than not, I have my female clients saying to me, oh, I just... I don't, I don't want to rock the apple cart. I'd just rather settle for this and like not, not upset him. And we'll just, we'll just go through with it um, as this agreement or whatever the case is. I think that is one aspect to it. That's why they tend to settle for less. And in a way, I understand that because for me, I'm talking about property settlement mostly. Money's not important. My mental health and my family are more important than money. So I get that. The other side of it, though, is lack of understanding at what their entitlements are. I often have, well, often, every now and then I have um, a woman come to me and say, oh, look, this is what happened or this is the way it settled. I, I don't know if it's right. I never really got any legal advice or I got pretty vague advice. And it's an agreement that they're entitled to so much less than they should have been. And so they've continued living their lives. They're generalising again, but husband's worked throughout the relationship, built up his career, wife has stayed at home, put her career on hold, looked after the children or child, the house, whatever it is. He says, I made more than you, so I should get more than you. And she just goes, oh, okay. But that's not how it works. And so then one of the court's considerations, there's plenty, but one is what are the future needs of the parties and how easily can each party rebuild their lives So it's often that they'll settle not understanding that they should have received something else to help them move on with their life because the husband who's got a successful career can easily rebuild his financial resources and rebuild his life more so than the wife can. So that's something that I'm really passionate about is ensuring that everyone, um, including men and women, have access to good quality um, legal advice before making a decision. And it's not about fighting or getting into an argument. It's just about understanding what your rights are before you settle. Do you find that most women don't know their rights? Is that your experience? Or most people? Let's let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And because it is kind of a confusing area where it's really based on your experience as a lawyer in understanding what's happened in cases beforehand. It's not like anyone could just look up the law and understand what they're entitled to. It is really based on a lawyer's experience and understanding. Yeah, I find that really interesting that things like tax and accounting and law, you can't do it yourself. You've got to actually get a specialist in because otherwise you're doing it wrong. You've got no idea what is going on, what the laws are, because they're so big. There's so many of them and they're changing all the time. Yeah, that's right. God, don't ask me about tax. That's definitely not my area of expertise. (laughs) No ATO. Hate the ATO. (laughs) They're all doing their job. You know, going back a few paces to what you, you were saying, when you get to court, it is in effect a lottery because while we do have laws and we do have guidelines that say X, Y, Z, if the judge or the magistrate has had a bad day or they've the previous 
case was run over or they had an argument with their missus this morning or they the crashed their car on the way in, mm. you're going to get a different outcome because there's a yeah. personality involved, isn't there? Yeah, that's exactly right. I suppose, look, technically it shouldn't. It shouldn't impact on their decisions. But I think the reality is, of course, it is going to impact somewhat if you're in a bad mood, you're going to react differently to something than if you were in a better mood. So I think it's inevitable that that happens. And But not only that, is also there is a huge range of discretion. So it's not just that particular judge on the day and what happened to them. It's the fact that judges do have that discretion. So they've got however many years of their life behind them that would impact on the way they make decisions. And it's still within the range of what the law says is fair, but it might not be what a different judge would have ordered or it might not be the ideal outcome that you would have gotten if you tried to resolve it outside of court. So what would be your advice to people if they're coming up for, um, what do you call it, separation, Separation. that's the word. (laughs) What would the course of action be the best like the path of least resistance and best outcome for all parties okay good question so step number one contact a good lawyer and get like proper legal advice and figure out what your questions are what your entitlements are what you're trying to achieve and then don't use the lawyer (laughs) because they cost a lot of money See how you go getting somewhere yourself. Obviously, there's exceptions. There's certain situations, particularly domestic violence situations, where it's not safe for you to be communicating with your former partner, which is completely understandable. And there's there's systems in place to assist you with that. But generally, I think it's really important that people first get proper advice so they know what they're asking for, where they're going, what they want to achieve, and then see how you go trying to get that agreement before you pay a lawyer thousands and thousands of dollars. And it's the same in any industry. There's bad, bad people and good people because there's the risk that you get a lawyer that's overly litigious that is going to rack up a bill when it really it could have just been a simple mediation and it would have resolved. Yeah, I, I want to just go off on a bit of a diversion here in what you were saying then because you mentioned domestic violence cases And when you were talking before about women tend to try to avoid confrontation, they'll go, okay, yeah, I don't want to fight. Mm -hmm. How much does that tie in with domestic, not domestic violence itself, but the reporting of domestic violence and the issues that we have when domestic violence cases are brought up in court? Because it can be very, or, or rape or any of that kind of thing, because it's very he said, she said, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We could go talk about that for hours and hours. So I, um, I'm also deal with domestic violence law. I um, um, operate. The government provides like a duty lawyer service for some of the courts um, around Queensland. And so on the Gold Coast here, I do a duty lawyer service at domestic violence court. So I deal hundreds of cases. And I think the the law the law in relation to domestic violence is very broad. So back in the old days, domestic violence was maybe you had to have a black eye to be able to show that there was domestic violence. That's not what it is anymore. Domestic violence is coercive behaviour, emotional abuse, financial abuse, like verbal abuse, um, calling someone names, derogatory names is domestic violence. 
it is very easy to get over that threshold that there has possibly been domestic violence. Um, the issue is how to deal with that as part of family court proceedings because they're two separate issues. The DV proceedings are completely different to family court proceedings. So whilst you may had a win, like you may have been found that there was domestic violence in your relationship, that's sort of watered down in the family court. For starters, because it has very little role to play in financial settlement, it's quite relevant for parenting matters. But the reality is that affects people's decision-making. That affects the victim's ability to make a decision and to stand up for themselves. And there, there is nothing to assist with that. It comes down to, a, I guess, a lawyer being able to advocate for that person or a support person that assists them. There's nothing in the law that, that helps them through that process because they've been a DV victim. So where I'm going with this in my brain as you're talking is, is there's a real gender discrimination here that we as women need to learn to move beyond. And you must see a lot of that in what you do. It's all right talking, and particularly, I suppose, older women more than younger women, because I think younger women are maybe more better educated mm -hmm. and have more skills to be able to deal with that kind of thing. But certainly the older women are generalization like you said earlier vast generalization is it more difficult how do we deal with that kind of thing mm -hmm. and um, and bring ourselves forward not just put you know be the quiet little good little wife in the corner yeah and I agree you know obviously I'm young-ish I'm, I'm in my uh, early 30s but I very often have older women come to me and their upbringing and their understanding of what a wife is is completely different to the way I understand a husband-wife relationship. And you can't talk that out of someone. That's that's the way they were brought up. That's um, in their history. That's what they were taught. You, you can't take that out of it. What I try and do is just not try and change their beliefs but try and get a different outcome for them than they would have thought they were entitled to. I think one of the big things for me with, if I can say the older generation, going through separation is they don't have any super. And this is one of the big things in property settlement. And this is what I'm talking about when I say that it's so important when you separate to get that legal advice because it gets too late if you leave it. There's time limits in relation to financial settlement after separation is that the older generation just leave things because that's the way they're used to dealing with it. They don't want to cause drama. So they have nothing. They've got nothing in super. They may have had a cut from the sale of the house or whatever it is, but they've got nothing in super. So there's a male that's been working for so many years. He's got 100, 200,000 plus in their super. And this poor woman has nothing to retire on. She's worked her whole life and it is work looking after children. You just don't get paid for it. So she's worked and not been paid super and not been paid and then has nothing for her future retirement. So I'm really passionate about that it's called a super split in financial settlement is and that sort of equals the playing field. That takes into account the fact that, well, yes, he got to work and earn his super his whole life, but she should receive some of that as her own super out of separation. I didn't know you could do that because that's really, you know, I mean, I'm 58 now. And I haven't worked for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And it's, I hardly got any super compared to what my husband's got. Yeah. And it is in my thing, well, I didn't work, but I did when we got four kids. <laughs> you worked. <laughs> <laughs> and I think 
sort of women who are older think still are in that mindset. Well, I didn't work. I didn't earn the money, but I was working way more hours than my husband was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No I agree. And, it, and that's what I mean is that people just don't realize or they don't think of it or they think it's too hard. And it really is quite an accepted practice in the family court that there would be a super split in those sorts of situations. It's not anything crazy that you're asking for. If you're asking for some of his super, it's quite a normal practice. Right. Okay. Just out of curiosity, what's the proportion of older divorce or separation to younger that you deal with? Mm-hmm. Definitely less in the older generations, maybe like 20% older than most, most younger. Right. And let's go back to that young, when people are splitting up, because we've got to think of the extended families and everything here. Give me a few stories. I think I'd like to hear some stories. Okay, stories. <laughs> well, I've got plenty. What do you want a story about? <laughs> um, best outcome, worst outcome, but funniest outcome is always a good one. Or what? Okay. Yeah. Let me think. Best outcome. Oh, look, that's hard to say because my view is, the best outcome is when a client is relatively happy with what the division is and there hasn't been too much damage of their relationship in the process. Because really, and this is funny, like having practiced in criminal law, it is very, very different because I'm not dealing with someone going to jail and the police trying to get someone put in jail. You're dealing with two people that once loved each other or at least cared about each other. So I think it's really sad. And, you know, occasionally I get asked the question when people, you know, call me up and they go, hey, I want a really good lawyer. Like, what's your success rate? Like, how many how many cases have you won? I'm like, well, it's not, it's not, you can't, how do you define winning a case? If, if my client's not miserable at the end of it and doesn't passionately hate the other party, well, then that's success for me. So I think they're the, they're the good outcomes. I don't, I suppose the only way that I judge them, it's not in, figures and it's not in who gets the majority care of the child it's about preserving that relationship and my client's mental health so if they come out of it and they're mostly happy then that's a good result for me (laughs) what about the impact on the kids because that's the hardest thing in a separation isn't it yeah that's a really hard one because you know you get people who just can't see it and I get it. Like I haven't been through, I'm on my first marriage, so I haven't been through a separation yet. So, but, you know, I can imagine it would be traumatizing and it would be really hard to separate your own feelings from what's going on with these little mini people that you've had with the other person who you, you might hate. Like some of them hate, they end up hating the other party and despising them. So it is hard to protect the children from that. And I think inevitably people make mistakes. They say things in front of the kids or to the kids or the kids are exposed to conflict. It happens all the time. No one's perfect. And I think that's really important that people accept that, yes, I shouldn't have done that. Let's do that better next time rather than just pretending it didn't happen or being like, oh, no, I did nothing wrong. So I think a lot of the conversations I have with my client when they say, oh, this happened, and I say, that you you should not be talking to your children about this. And they go, oh, but, but, but. And I go, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't about me telling you you're a terrible person. This is about me acknowledging like, yes, this is really hard, but this is something that's really important that you protect your children from this conflict in the future. 
Is there a, this is a loaded question, a best age for children when their parents are getting separated? That's funny. Well, I don't know if I can answer that. It's yeah. a really difficult one, isn't it? Because yeah. I was thinking about it. I thought, oh, teenagers, they've got all the teenager angst going yeah. on anyway. Babies is probably easiest, but then whoever's got. Yeah. You know what? I- I'm going to say this. This is <laughs> this is my personal opinion, I guess. And from what I've seen from my clients, the best time to separate from someone is as soon as you decide you need to separate from them, do it then. Don't stay together because you want to keep it together for the kids. Don't stay together for financial reasons because no matter the, what the age of the children are, that's when they get impacted by it. If you realise that you don't want to be with someone anymore and it's not working out, well, then that's it. Break up, try and keep things as amicable as possible and keep your children so they're not exposed to that building up of hatred and anger and despising the other person and wanting to get away from them. I think that's the worst part of a separation. So have there been any funny moments in what you're doing? Um, yeah, well, I think they're funny. I don't know if my clients would. <laughs> well, what happened? Oh, I'm not going to go into specifics. I'm cautious of breaching any client yeah, confidentiality. Totally. But generally the really funny, um, the really funny stories for me are when people just behave like two-year-olds and it's the text messages that get me when I get to read the text messages that go between people I'm just like what are you doing why are you putting this into a text message so I think it's funny but they wouldn't have thought it was funny at the time Is that an issue for you when you're acting as a mediator or a solicitor when you've got that when you've got to I suppose it's kind of release, allow people to release so much energy Mm. so that they can talk to each other. How do you do that? Sometimes you can't. Some mediations are about everyone getting it out, putting whatever they want to say on the table. It's a bit of a cathartic process and then they can move on. But it depends on, you know, it depends on the situation. Some people can't do that. Some people I have in separate rooms and they have nothing to do with each other and I have to water down everything that's said before I take it back to the other side. That must be really draining emotionally. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you deal with that? Because yeah, how do you not bring that home? I know. Yeah, don't. You don't ask my husband about that one. <laughs> I'm constantly like, so if we ever separate, this is what we have to do and this is what we can't do. And he's like, why are you talking about this? (laughs) I think it's really hard to deal with those emotions during a mediation as a mediator because when I'm lawyering, I don't really know the other party. All I'm doing is speaking with, I'd never speak to the other party. I, I only talk to my client. So I'm quite invested in them alone. But as a mediator, I talk to both of them and I feel for both of them. And so I'm invested on both of them getting a good outcome. And that is way more draining than when I am representing someone as a lawyer because I'm constantly running back and forth between these two parties and I genuinely want them to get an agreement and I'm trying to make sure I don't upset this person and I know that one thing that they said would probably upset the other party, so I've got to try and water that down a bit. So it's definitely more emotionally draining to be a mediator than it is to be a lawyer. But which is the most satisfying? Oh, mediating for sure. I would have thought so. Because the outcome you receive at the end of it, just having even in the most antagonistic relationships, 
at least if they walk out, like you say, and they're mostly happy, because half the time, if you got the two of them in a room together, they just want to stab each other. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I do a lot of mediations in separate rooms, because they can't be in the same room together. Do the solicitors enable that sometimes? Do they? Oh, look, to be honest, rarely. Yes, they do. Like I said, you know, there's good doctors, bad doctors, good lawyers, bad lawyers. Yes, some solicitors do. Most of them are pretty good, though. We're not that bad. (laughs) No, and especially not if you're in family law. It's not like it's criminal or anything like that, is it? Yeah, well, look, like you, I said I was a criminal lawyer. Hey, don't judge criminal lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) But that Um, is all antagonistic. That's very... You know know what's funny, though, is I find that um, sometimes family law is more antagonistic than criminal law is. So when I was a criminal lawyer, you know, I'm I'm against the prosecutor, I'm against the police, but it was really not about that. Like we'd go out for a beer after work. Family law is not quite like that. I think because it's more personal. And like I said, lawyers, you, you, you do, you get invested in your clients. They, you talk to them almost every day. You really care about them. So I think it is harder. As a criminal lawyer, I think it's easier to have that division. It's harder in family law. Yeah, it's kind of almost like in criminal law, you've got the facts and it's all about the facts and proving the facts or disproving them. But in family law, it's all about he said, she said. Mm -hmm. There are no clear, I I always said to my children, stop with the story and tell me what happened. Yeah. And you can't really do that in family law because the story is so involved and it goes back years. Yeah. (laughs) And the thing is, most of the time, people aren't lying. They're not genuinely trying to deceive. They believe their truth. They believe that's what happened. And that makes it even harder because neither of them are lying. They both just have different lenses on what's happened. Yeah, that famous old story about the being all these people around the campfire and somebody falls over and everybody tells a different story. Oh, he was yeah. tripped up. Oh, he had a heart attack. No, he did this. It was a <laughs> rabbit. And everybody's absolutely convinced that they, they're telling the truth. And yeah. that's got to be so much more impactful in a family court. Yeah. yeah. I think one of the, or maybe it's a mistake, I don't know, um, lawyers, and I think that's part of our job, we get bogged down in the evidence presenting our client's case based on historically what's happened, et cetera, et cetera. But when I'm mediating, you know, we we talk about, you know, the history of the matter, but really that doesn't matter. I'm not there to give them legal advice, so I really don't care about the history of the matter. What matters is getting getting the agreement. What matters is the future. So really the question for a med- for a lawyer is what are the facts? How do I present my client's case? The question for a mediator is what do these two people want to achieve? How can I get to that point? Is what they want to achieve different to what they are entitled to? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the time. <laughs> Why? In what way? <laughs> I could give a million examples. You know, the t- the typical one, you know, we're talking about a standard separation. There's a house. The husband wants a hundred grand out of the house. The wife wants 200 grand. Like he's adamant that that's what he's entitled to. She's adamant that that's what she's entitled to. Like it's just even with good lawyers, you can't convince people 
what the law is or what they're entitled to if they're so focused on what they deserve. So it's their view of what they're entitled to is not according to the law. Their view is what they deserve. That's a big issue. So another loaded question for you here. You're stepping onto a minefield here. Yeah, i got to be so careful what I say. <laughs> I know, right? Sorry. Is, I'm, I'm having a ball here. This is great. Um, is it, wouldn't the best course of action in separation be to go to mediation rather than go to court? Should that be like only in exceptional cases and everybody else goes to mediation? Yeah, well, it's interesting that you've said that. So in um, the Family Law Act for many years, it's been the case that you must mediate parenting matters before you go to court. Um, And then you get a little certificate that says you've tried and then you can go to court. In financial matters, there was just a change in the court system. So as of the 1st of September this year, there's been a change where the court requires you to have at least ask the other party to try mediation before commencing proceedings for financial matters. So there is definitely a bigger push from everyone higher up to try mediation because I think they've realised the benefits in that. My Back to your question of is it better just to mediate and not ever go to court, I, I do not agree with that because there are situations where you have a completely unreasonable other party who has all of the control, like in DV situations, You can't mediate with people like that. And very often it's wife leaves the house, flees a DV situation, is stuck in refuge with the kids. He's got all the money, all the financial control. He's living in the house. Do you really think that he's going to mediate, particularly with a DV background? She needs to apply to the court to get that court intervention and that order so she can make sure she's protected. How quickly does it take for that to come through? Because that is a vile situation, taking your kids and having to live in a shelter Mm. of some kind. How long does it take? It can take months. It's not, yeah, justice is not quick in the family court. Oh, this is a huge issue in, in our industry. The court is just, I don't know whether there's not enough government funding maybe there's a huge backlog. They're trying with this new change that came through in September. They're really working hard to try and get matters through as quick as they can. I'm not faulting the judiciary. I think that everyone is really making an effort, but it's just it's hard to get urgent court dates. There's not enough judges. They have you know 20, 50 matters in their docket in one day. Sometimes they're just they're just trying to get through them the best they can. I guess it's a funding issue. Yeah, from what I understand, I'm talking as a complete non-legal person here. It's also like um, they haven't got the uh, superstructure to do it either. They haven't got the law courts or the the offices to actually be able to deal with it. And I'm just talking about my experience, for example, with Queensland Health about mm-hmm. we moved up from New South Wales. So end of every term, I have to get a border pass and an exemption for my daughter to quarantine at home. Joy. <laughs> and I'm not, you know, I know the people that work in Queensland Health now, and I know I got one border pass through. I'm not telling a lie. The minister signed it at half past five on a Friday night, and I actually got my uh, exemption, not border pass, the exemption through at seven o'clock on a Friday night. So I know those people are working really hard. They're doing everything they can. But like you say, the resources and the facilities and everything just aren't there to back them up. Yeah, yeah. It's been, you know, interestingly, back pre-COVID, 
every court appearance I did in the family court was in person. It was unusual to be able to appear via phone or web conference. And now it's like it's the reverse. And I think that has helped in, first of all, reducing clients' costs because they're not paying me to, because I'm on the Gold Coast, they're not paying me to drive to Brisbane and sit there for hours waiting for our matter to get called on. I can just sit in my office waiting for it to get called doing work. And then as soon as I'm called on, that's when I appear. So that has definitely assisted. Um, Interestingly enough, that's the one good thing that COVID has brought. I think it's really forced, and because the legal profession is quite old and a bit stuck in their ways, and I think that really pushed everyone quickly into having to progress into the future, and it's helped. So that's the one good thing that's come out of COVID for us. Yeah, totally agree with you on that, Mark, because we do property development and my husband used to despair because the solicitors would want to hand over checks and stand on the court steps to exchange documents. My husband's like, do it online. (laughs) I know, it's nuts, isn't it? No, I don't trust those things. Well, why not? The rest of the world's doing it. (laughs) So we're going to start wrapping up in a minute. Tell me what would you like to get out there? I mean, we've had a fabulous conversation that's just kind of meandered all over the place. (laughs) What is it you really want to get across to people? I think the biggest thing is make sure that you get just that initial legal advice. Even if you don't use a lawyer, you don't have to have a lawyer to separate. You don't, you know what I mean? You don't have to make it hard. But just at least get that advice so you know what your entitlements are or even the process and what the risks are if you don't use a lawyer or if you don't finalise your agreements properly. I just think it's crazy how many people just sort of figure out their way through it and make so many mistakes along the way. And there's so many, like I do free initial consults. Heaps of lawyers do free initial consultations where you can just have a chat with a lawyer and just get the basics just so you've got some a little bit of advice. And particularly for women, the Women's Legal Service, the Queensland Women's Legal Service, they provide a free consultation to anyone that makes an inquiry with them. So anyone who is, you know, worried about the cost that a lawyer might be, the Queensland Women's Legal Service provide a free consult and they're just like, I volunteer there. It's just normal lawyers that volunteer there. So you are getting proper legal advice from them. So that's that's the big takeaway I want people to take away from today. Thank you. The other thing I was going to ask you, I meant to ask you earlier on, but we kind of got sidetracked. How do you tell what a good lawyer is? So you said, find a good lawyer. Mm. Look, I couldn't even say. I think it's about speaking with them and feeling comfortable with them and not getting caught up because lawyers a lot of us we're we're storytellers we appear in court we're used to presenting ourselves and making people think we're amazing that's just part of what lawyers do so I think and people get caught up in that but you can always trust your instincts I can't even tell you how many times I've had clients come to me that have said oh I went with this lawyer And it's at a fancy law firm and I thought that was the best way to go and they really talked it up and they said I'd be entitled to this huge amount but I just had to pay all this money first. They're like, I I thought it was wrong but I just got sucked. That's the issue. They, You really need to not focus on what lawyers are saying because we're very good at talking. That's our job. (laughs) Focus on your gut instinct and whether you trust trust them. That's important. Yeah, don't get sucked in by the sales talk. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, lawyers are sometimes, we're like salesmen really, I guess. We're used to talking and having to present in court and work on our feet and make a judge believe us even though it might not be the truth. So I think trust your instinct. (laughs) Thank you so much. People can get in touch with you through your website. Is that the easiest way? Yeah. Yeah, so Clarity Legal Group is um, my law firm. So that's where I lawyer. And my mediation centre is Clarity Mediation Centre. Great. And both of those links are on the website, the, the webpage that goes with this episode, and they'll be in the show notes too. Thank you so much, Nicole. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it was so nice talking to you, Karen. Thank so you. So much fun. You gave us loads of information. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. Talk to you soon. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite player. And while you're at it, we'd love you to leave us a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be amazing too. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode. And remember, if you're busy thinking about what you can't have, how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have? See you next week.